It was just last year that political pundits were talking about Governor Cuomo's prospects as a U.S. presidential candidate. But now, he's lost even his governorship, mainly due to allegations of sexual harassment. Did you know that since the term sexual harassment was first used in 1975, rates of sexual harassment have not really changed, which essentially means that for the last 46 years, real change has happened at a glacial pace in America's fight against sexual harassment. Hey there, news peelers. Today is August 20, 2021, and this is Adele with Appeal.News. Once a week, we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. <laughs> oh boy, sometimes history gives us a good laugh. Sometimes it offends. And sometimes it just, it just shocks. Like, did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of this stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both and let's get into it. Governor Andrew Cuomo, for all intents and purposes, it's really former Governor Cuomo now, even though he still has a few days left in the governor's office. He resigned last week after mounting political pressure and the threat of an impeachment proceeding, which was, in part, based on a report by New York's Attorney General, claiming that Mr. Cuomo has sexually harassed multiple women in violation of state and federal laws, and that he has created a hostile work environment and has even retaliated against at least one former employee. That impeachment investigation was suspended by New York's State Assembly several days after Mr. Cuomo's resignation. In his televised resignation speech, Mr. Cuomo, whose three daughters are in their 20s now, claimed that the report against him is false due to bias and lack of fairness in the justice system. He said that the most serious allegations made against me have no credible factual basis in the report. He emphasized that there is a difference between alleged improper conduct and concluding sexual harassment. And then he added, Don't get me wrong. This is not to say that there are not 11 women who I truly offended. There are, and for that, I deeply, deeply apologize. As the host of the Peel Dot News, it's hard for me to talk about this news without commenting about it. I mean, really? In this day and age? And after the Me Too movement? Shouldn't he have known better? To dig deeper and better understand sexual harassment, such as, what does the term sexual harassment even mean? And where does it come from? We spoke with Ms. Carrie Baker. She's a professor of the study of women and gender at Smith College and the chair of American Studies there. She's the co-founder and former co-director of the Five College Certificate in Reproductive Health, Rights, and Justice. Professor Baker received her PhD, JD, and MA from Emory University, and her research focus is on women's legal history, gender, and public policy, and feminist activism. She's the author of the Women's Movement Against Sexual Harassment, a 2008 book, and Sexual Harassment Law a 2020 book. A link to Professor Baker's academic homepage, which includes a list of her publications and accomplishments, is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Baker and I peel the history behind this news. This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review. And don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. 
Professor Baker, it is such a pleasure to have you on our show today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. After allegations of sexual harassment by about a dozen women, I think there were actually 11 women, New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, resigned this week due to mounting political pressure for him to step down. And also there was the threat of an impeachment proceeding against him. Uh, as you well know, we don't really get into the news here. What we do get into is the history behind the news. So let's, let's get into it. What does the term sexual harassment mean? Okay, so I, th- I think that it's important to distinguish between the legal definition and then how we use it in popular discourse. There's I'm going to start. There's a big difference. Often. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes, yes. And I, I thought I'd start by talking a little bit about the law and how law defines sexual harassment. Please do. So the term sexual harassment um, has evolved in the law to cover two forms of behavior. One is called quid pro quo sexual harassment, and the other is called hostile environment sexual harassment. And quid pro quo sexual harassment is when someone in authority, like a boss or a teacher, makes unwelcome sexual advances towards or sexual demands of a subordinate either a student or a subordinate employee, by offering tangible benefits or threatening tangible detriment. So that's things like have sex with me or you're fired, or I'll give you an A if you have sex with me. Um, And the threat can be explicit or implicit. So it's when somebody in authority kind of coerces somebody under their power to engage in sexual behaviors um, that are unwelcome. And, you know, by, by, you know, offering some tangible, and when I say tangible benefit, I mean like a pay raise, a job, a promotion, and or in the context of education, a, a better grade or a position on the swim team or whatever. So it's it's this kind of quid pro quo is Latin for this, for that. And so it's sort of an explicit bargain that's made. So Professor Baker, does the definition of quid pro quo exclude sexual harassment from a peer at the same level as uh, as a person yes. it does unless okay. that peer has power over another person but usually peers by definition are not don't have power over each other i see where peer sexual harassment comes up is hostile environment sexual harassment and that's unwelcome sexual or sex-based conduct that unreasonably interferes with an individual's performance at work or school by creating an intimidating, hostile, or offensive environment. So that could be somebody um, touching somebody else in the workplace, and that could be a peer. It could also be a supervisor, but it's, it's not um, you know, it's something that's about the environment, right? It's not necessarily a tangible, like, I'm going to fire you if you don't comply. It's, I'm just going to grab you, you know, and I'm, or it's like um, verbal harassment, um, sexual remarks or jokes, display of pornographic pictures or cartoons in the workplace, um, other kinds of physical harassment, like maybe interfering with somebody's ability to move, like cornering them in an elevator. Or, you know, just physically harassing behavior. Well, and it can. Assault can compose. And it doesn't have to be sexual. Um, In my book that I wrote on sexual harassment, I talked about women trying the women's movement against sexual harassment. Okay. I talked about women breaking into like the construction industry or to coal mining. And the guys there really didn't want them there. And so often they would engage in physically threatening behavior. They would urinate in their gas tank. They would, you know, if you've ever seen the movie North Country, the woman goes into the porta potty and the guys knock the porta potty over and she gets covered with the contents of the porta potty. So it's it's not sexual. Could you rem- could you could you um, uh, repeat the name of that movie please? North Country? North Country. Okay. Yeah, with Char- um yeah, with Charlene um oh, I'm forgetting her name. Right. Anyway, uh, yeah, Theron, yeah. Okay. She was great. But the point being, it doesn't have to be sexual. I mean, when people say sexual harassment, they always think, oh, it's only sexual behavior. It's really sexual or sex-based conduct. So if people are harassing you because they don't want you in the workplace because you're a woman, that could be sexual harassment. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Oh, I see. So um, 
since we're talking law, I'm going to split hairs a little bit here. So let's say you are a woman and you come from the union into a sort of a construction yeah. site. I'm, I'm going by your analogy. Uh, and they start harassing you because you're a union representative or, or, or a company representative, whatever, some, someone of an outsider. How do you distinguish whether this is just outright harassment and yeah. sort of assault versus sexual harassment? Or sex-based harassment. Exactly. Usually yeah, yeah. because it's combined with like, you shouldn't be in this workplace. You're taking a man's job. I see. We don't like women here. So there has to be some evidence that the person harassing did it because of the sex of the person that they're targeting. Right? And so that's important to keep in mind. Um, the harasser can be really in hostile environment harassment, really anybody. It could be the boss or a teacher or a coach. It could be a peer. So in the context of education, it could be other students. Let's say you're a server in a restaurant. It could be a client or a customer. So if a customer is sexually harassing a server and the server goes to the manager and says, this client is grabbing my rear end, and the manager says, get used to it. That's just the way it is. Wow. That, that restaurant could be sued for sexual harassment because employers have an obligation to create an environment that does not have sexual harassment in it. Or when they become aware that sexual harassment is going on, they have to do something about it. Um, so that's important to keep in mind. The other thing is, is that men and women are protected. It's not just women. Men can be sexually harassed as well. How often and they, does that happen? They, so, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is the federal commission that investigates sexual harassment complaints, of their the complaints that get filed with them, about 16% are coming from men. So, you know, it's 80, 16, 80, 16, 16, yeah. Okay. So 80, 84 are women, 16 are men. So it's not an insignificant number. Often those men are harassed by other men. And often it's because of gender related issues, like they see that man as being gay or not being manly enough. But sometimes it's just like he's the new kid on the block. And so they're going to, you know, grab his, you know, private parts or they're going to call him, you know, uh, uh, derogatory, gender based derogatory comments. So men definitely experience this as well as women. And, and that's, by the way, particularly true in educational institutions. I mean, just think about middle school. Whoa, in educational institutions, like yeah. teachers I mean, or students? Other students, really. Oh, other and students, like, I see. Like, think about seventh grade in the United States. Yeah. Any seventh grader remembers that if a guy is effeminate, he gets harassed a lot by a lot of people. He's called a sissy. He's, exactly. you know, he's called gay, whether he's gay or not. And all of that falls within the scope of federal sexual harassment law. Are kids being, in that age prosecuted for that sort of conduct or they're just sort of reprimanded by school faculty, right? So first of all, I, I, you use the word prosecuted. Sexual harassment law is not criminal law, it's civil law. And federal sexual harassment law doesn't target the perpetrators, it targets the schools and the employers that don't do anything about it. And that's something that's important to keep in mind. Now, there are state laws. Wait, you mean the harasser can bullying. walk scot-free out of yeah. a criminal proceeding? They can be sued in court civilly, right? Yes, but not under sexual harassment law. Usually it's under like tort law. You're a lawyer, yeah. so you know. Yeah, tort yeah, yeah. law is like, you know, where somebody breaches a contract or they, they're negligent and rear-end you, you know, exactly. in your car. Or, you know, so you can, it's rare, but you can bring, you know, there are civil assault laws where you can bring uh, a civil case for damages because somebody assaulted you. That's the kind of law that you could bring against a perpetrator. Um, some, a, a few, a handful of states have laws, sexual harassment laws that enable you to sue the perpetrator. So the important thing is that under the federal definition of sexual harassment, somebody bringing a case has to prove that the behavior was severe or pervasive. It's a really high standard. And actually it's even higher in educational institutions. Students have to prove um, you know, that it's just really, really bad behavior. And the popular understanding of sexual harassment, I think is like that anybody's offended by anything, it's against the law. And that's not the case. Um, now, I think that you could, you know, people might, you know, 
Well, let me just stop there. So, well, can you give me, without obviously being explicit, just an example of what is meant by severe? What's the level of severity? Yeah. So, um, a physical sexual assault would be considered severe. Um, you know, physical touching, like if you grab somebody's genitals or you grab their breasts, would be considered severe. Uh, pervasive means that it happens regularly over an extended period of time so that there's multiple instances. And all of this is determined by a judge or jury. And so, you know, it, sort it of basically. Yeah. And you, you have to prove that a reasonable person would be would find that behavior um, to interfere with their work, their ability to get their job done. So if you're not touching uh, a person that works for you, yeah. but you constantly, uh, I don't know, put stick sexual cartoons uh, on their desk, whether that person is a man or a woman, over time, that could become severe. That could raise to yeah. that level. So yeah, it, 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 and it would be pervasive. If it happened regularly exactly. over an extended period of time and it interfered with the person's ability to get their job done, if they found it hostile and intimidating and distracting so that they couldn't, you know, they were worried for their physical safety or something, then that could potentially rise to the level of the legal definition of sexual harassment. So it doesn't always have to be physical contact. It could come from repetition of something that becomes persuasive. Uh, Professor Baker, why don't we take a short break and then talk about the history of the movement against sexual harassment? <music> Professor Baker, in the last segment, we talked about the meaning of the term sexual harassment. What I want to know is, when was the term first used? And did the term sexual harassment um, refine a previously used term? Or was its use the first of its kind, that it ushered in a whole new awareness, culture, and movement? It definitely ushered in a whole new awareness. So the term was developed in the spring of 1975 in Ithaca, New York. A wow, group specific. of okay. very specific. It was developed for a poster that was used to bring people together for a speak out. Now, a speak out was a strategy used in the women's movement, when women had a problem that they thought was their personal problem, but they realized that a lot of other women also experienced the problem. So they'd get together and tell their stories and share their stories. And so activists who um, were up in Ithaca, who had all experienced sexual coercion in the workplace, decided that they were going to have a speak out. And they were developing this poster and they're like, what should we call it? And they sat oh, around wow. in a room and batted around some ideas and the term sexual harassment came up and they're like, yeah, that's it. And they wanted to get, you know, a kind of a broad range of behavior. They didn't want to just have it be like physical sexual assault. They wanted it to include, you know, these demands that were made of them or the behavior in the workplace that made it hard for them to do their jobs. And so women got together and they began to organized around this idea of sexual harassment. So now it's, it always has existed. It wasn't new behavior, but it was something that just was there without a name. And social movements often name behaviors as a way of identifying them and then organizing to prevent them. Was there anything in particular about that period, 1975, that, uh, that made this happen, uh, the, the coming up with this term and these speak outs. By the way, I'd never heard that term. This is my first time. So was there anything yeah. special about that period? Absolutely. It was the height of the women's movement. Uh -huh. And also 
um, the civil rights movement. And a lot of the activists who organized around sexual harassment had backgrounds in the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement. Within the women's rights movement, there had been an anti-rape movement that had started in around 1970 and began to have speak outs and began to organize for better laws and shelters and hotlines. And so there was that. And then you also had employment. Women's employment numbers were going up. And we had the Civil Rights Act of 1965, which prohibited sex discrimination in employment. So women began to enter new fields. They began to enter the workplace in greater numbers. And what happened is they faced a lot of resistance from men. And that resistance often took the form of sexual harassment. You say women entered uh, the workforce in greater numbers. Are we talking about surges of employment occur in different times in history for women? Well, post-World War II, I mean, during World War II, women's employment numbers went way up because of Rosie the Riveter and bringing women into the workforce because men were abroad fighting the war. After the war- Is that considered blue collar? uh, Well, welding and riveting was considered blue collar, but women's participation in the workforce sort of went up across the board. I see. And- After the war, it never fully went back down and women and and it was for a lot of reasons, but women's workforce participation steadily went up from the mid 20th century up until this time period, the 70s. And the the men that come back from World War II resent that? Well, I mean, they got a lot of them got their jobs back and women lost their jobs initially. Oh, I see. But but the women still had to work. A lot of them needed to work to support their families and, you know. As our economy shifted from a manufacturing economy with high paying jobs towards a service economy with a lot of lower paying jobs, women often were needed to work to contribute to their family's income to be able to keep you know, their family housed and fed and all of that. And the other thing that was happening in the 70s was the divorce rate was increasing. And so more and more women would find themselves on their own, often with children needing to support their families. And so that also sort of fueled women's increasing workforce participation. And then finally, you know, anti-discrimination laws opened up a lot of fields. So you mentioned blue collar fields, you know, fields like construction and mining. Um, women, because of these new laws, were able to begin to break into those fields. And also like law, becoming a lawyer, becoming a doctor, you know, going to business school. Um, You know, Title IX passed in 1972, which prohibited sex discrimination in education. So many fields opened up to women. And so the issue of sexual harassment became a more significant issue because more women were affected and the women you know, needed their income to survive. And so they mobilized around this issue during that time period. So when incidents of um, sexual harassment arose at the workplace, did women start sort of complaining, going to HR, going to lawyers, going to, uh, I guess, uh, prosecutors? Uh, Did that start in the 70s too? Yes, women began to file... um, civil rights lawsuits under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And the argument was that sexual harassment was a form of sex discrimination against women and that it had the impact of forcing women out of the workplace or, you know, creating, you know, onerous conditions that disproportionately affected women. And Originally, you know, across the country, women filed these lawsuits. And by the way, most of the women that filed these lawsuits that succeeded were African-American women. Often the sexual harassment they experienced was racialized sexual harassment. So, you know, a white boss would make racist comments and make sexual advances towards their black female subordinate employees or black bosses, male bosses would make sexualized comments towards black female employees. And so is there a reason for that? Well, there is a reason. Sexual harassment is all about power. And people, I mean, think about Como right now. The reason he got away with what he got away with for so long is he had so much power. He could blacklist anybody in the legal and political field. And so he was able to keep a lot of people under wraps and keep his behavior secret, or at least, you know, not public for a long time. And 
you know, people that sexually harass choose people that are less powerful in the workplace to target because they know that will enable them to get away with it. Wow. And, and women of wow. color disproportionately have less power. Of course, right? yeah. Um, immigrant women. In, in, for instance, in farm work in the United States, immigrant women farm workers are one of, have one of the highest rates of sexual harassment. And it's because often they're undocumented or even if they're not undocumented, they may, you know, they're low income. They don't have a lot of resources. They may not know how to, they may not have the resources to hire an attorney or to challenge um, the behavior. They may need their job so much that they can't do anything about it. Are the harassers uh, usually members of their own ethnicity or race or sort of, let's say, uh, others? Or is they in both. There's both. intra uh, racial sexual harassment and inter. Um, you know, it, it definitely, um, you know, like African-American men were harassing. Af I mean, think of Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas is a perfect example. But white men also disproportionately harass black women. Yeah. So, again, it's it's the power sort of hierarchies of the workplace that that make women of color particularly vulnerable to sexual harassment. You talked about uh, power. And you used uh, Governor Cuomo's power as an example there. So it's it's got to be frightening that 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 decision, that moment that a woman, and you also said sixteen percent of men are also subject to sexual harassment. That person decides to go report or go call a lawyer. So, what is retaliation like? How intense is it? So. 70% of people who experience sexual harassment never report it. And 70%? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Most people don't report it because they know they'll get retaliated 70%? against. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's very high because, um, you know, you're a subordinate employee in the workplace. You need your job. You don't want to make waves. Often the people harassing you have more power, or if they're peers, there may be multiple of them. And you're hesitant to make waves. You want to just try to get along. Um, and often what women historically did and still today do, they, they'll just leave a job. But the problem with that is, is that then you have to start all over in a new job back down at the beginning and it can really have a negative impact on your or, employment. or if or if it's a tight niche industry that that harasser mm -hmm. that former boss may actually put out a bad word for Black you or something ball. like you blackball absolutely you. Yeah. Um, i mean that's i'm sure what what harvey weinstein threatened the women if you tell anybody you'll never get a job in hollywood again right that's right so you know that's the reality and and for a lot of women it's just easier to to just get the hell out of there and start over. I mean, think of Anita Hill. She didn't report because she was afraid if she reported Clarence Thomas, well, first of all, he was the head of the agency that enforced sexual harassment law. So, you know, that was one problem. And sexual harassment law wasn't very clear at the time it happened in 1980. It really, the first Supreme Court case wasn't until 1986. But the, the fact of the matter is she wanted him to recommend her and she knew that, you know, if she reported him, that she would end up, you know, probably losing job opportunities. And she also, by the way, loved her work at that agency and didn't want to have to give it up by leaving. So a lot of times the women will just put up with it. That's going to be a big say, deal, uh, especially if it's a coveted position. You've you've worked all your life to get there. And now let's say you're at a university, you're, 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 uh, uh, you know, um, I don't know, at a prestigious uh, institution. Now you got to leave because of this. Yeah. Interesting. At the outset of this segment, when I asked you about when when the term sexual harassment sort of took on, started being used, you said it's always been there. Can you give me some examples? And I'm not surprised at that statement, but are there any sort of highlights, examples of... Uh, periods of intense sexual harassment that were publicly sort of created scandals in our country in the past? Yes, there's tons of them. I mean, I'll go all the way back to slavery. Enslaved women had no right to say no to sex with their enslavers, right? We know this, right? Talk about ultimate women, power on in the hands of exactly. the harasser. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether it's a foreman or the owner of the plantation or, you know, I mean, they they had no rights. And there's an essay that I use in my teaching call uh, that, that 
frames the sort of origins of sexual harassment as being in the system of slavery in the United States. But it's but it occurred in other ways too. indentured servants. If you know the history you know, of people coming over as indentured servants, where they would be contractually bound to work for somebody for a for, you know, could be 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that person, you know, paid for them to come over. And, you know, a a lot of times women in those situations were sexually abused by the men that employed them to whom they were indentured servants. And then in the industrial workforce, as um, factories developed, women often were targeted um, for sexual abuse by foremen in factories. And there's a lot of histories about this. Actually, back in the 19th century, the first wave of the women's movement, they were activists that organized to defend women who were sexually abused by their bosses in these industrial workplaces. Do we know about these incidents because of these movements that you just mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. But they were often covered in the press, too. So for they instance, were? Uh, yeah, there are legal cases where indentured servants would sue their uh, masters and, you know, because they were pregnant, usually it was because they ended up pregnant and had a baby and they would sue them to compensate them, you know, to be able to raise the child in the industrial workplace. The same thing, you know, women um, would have these experiences of sexual abuse and they would a, a number of women's rights activists in the 19th century took up their cases and got it in the newspapers and would file lawsuits. And so, um you know, and, and were, were those lawsuits filed under, let's say, tort laws? They were often filed under. Yeah. I mean, and again, it wasn't framed as sexual harassment, but it was more framed as like sexual abuse in the workplace or um, actually. In when you say framed, did they use those words or did they use other words? No. And, you know, I'm, I'm, they didn't use those words because those are yeah. I'm using very like late 20th century yeah, yeah, terms. Yeah, I follow. Um, but it would you know, there was a whole series. This is really interesting. In the early like 1910s, 15s, a whole series of series of congressional um, hearings about how when women enter in the industrial workforce, they are at danger of becoming prostitutes. And what Whoa. that was was sexual harassment. What would happen is they'd get in these industrial workplaces and they'd get sexually abused by the men in the workplace and then often end up in these circumstances where they would have no other way to support themselves. And so there was a lot of concern about, you know, it, and again, it often wasn't framed this way, yeah, um, yeah. But, but this is what was happening. It was sexual abuse in the workplace that then would make women really vulnerable to sexual abuse more broadly in the sex trade. We could have several conversations, several podcasts <laughs> yeah. on this. Um, Professor There's Baker, books written on it. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Professor Baker, why don't we take a short break here? Okay. Uh, we'll be back to talk about sexual harassment in other countries and about social media and the Me Too movement. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. Professor Baker, how does sexual harassment in America compare to other countries? And I appreciate that this is a broad question. There are there are so many different aspects of he- sexual harassment to compare here. So you're welcome to highlight um, some specific points. Yeah, absolutely. So sexual harassment exists around the world. It's not unique to the United States. Um, you know, we in the United States, you know, developed that term sexual harassment Mm -hmm. and developed some of the earliest laws specifically addressing Mm -hmm. sexual harassment. Um, And so, you know, what we've done in the U.S. has been very influential in other countries as far as the development of law. That said, not all countries take the same approach. We in the United States develop the law under the context of discrimination law. So it's framed as a... um, 
as a civil rights violation, as a harm against women as women. But, you know, for instance, in France, it's seen as a violation of dignity. Uh, not violation of dignity of dignity not interesting and india as well it's it's a a violation of dignity it's not discrimination against women and you know there's pluses and minuses to different approaches and how the harm is framed um but you know many countries have adopted the u.s framing of you know sexual harassment and sex discrimination but that's not the only way that people think about this is the rate or percentage of sexual harassment at the workplace higher in other countries um, than the U.S.? Yeah. So, you know, in the U.S., most surveys show that the majority of women experience sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, and I think in many other countries, it's also quite high. Um, and Maybe they just don't report it or there are no surveys there, right? Well, uh, yes, I do think that we probably have some of the most robust uh, research done on sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that, you know, ironically, maybe we've come pretty far in social norms. Like people know it's wrong. And when they do it, they try to hide it in the United States. There are still many countries in the world where people don't think it's wrong. They don't try to hide it and where there aren't laws to prohibit it. So I think that, you know, it really uh, varies in countries where women have a lot of social power uh, and political power, um, those countries are more likely to have laws against sexual harassment. Whereas in countries where women have very little political power, then there there's less likely to be laws, and women are more likely to experience it. Are 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 laws and social norms more protective of women here in America than say Western Europe, uh, Northern Europe, or Canada? No, not necessarily. Not I mean, necessarily. The, those countries, Western Europe and Canada, have strong sexual harassment laws as well as the United States. I see. Um, Professor Baker, did the Me Too movement change the fight against sexual harassment? Absolutely, it changed the fight and in a couple ways. One, it increased awareness that sexual harassment is a problem and that it's an ongoing problem. It increased awareness that powerful men can get away with a lot mm-hmm, and not mm-hmm. and, and not be held accountable. It generated a lot of rage about this, that we're, you know, 46 years into having named the phenomena, we're still experiencing this kind of abusive behavior. Still going on. It's still going on. And, and then the other way it had a massive effect is in new laws. You know, in the three years after Me Too emerged in October of 2017, more than a third of states adopted new protections and and states all over from Oregon to Vermont, from Tennessee to Louisiana. And and there were all kinds of laws, things like, um, you know, laws limiting employers use of forced arbitration or non-disclosure clauses, which is what, you know, uh, Harvey Weinstein used extending the statute of limitations, the amount of time to be able to bring these kinds of claims, um, expanding the coverage to independent contractors or interns or volunteers for the first time. Because wow, Title contractors VII, and interns were not part of no, it? No, they're, they're not covered by federal law because they're not employees. Employees is where you, you know, an independent <laughs> contractor, you have a contract with another person, but you're not an employee. Yeah. And Title VII only covers employees. The other thing is Title VII only applies to employers of more than 15 people. So if you work for a small moms and pops store, there's only five employees, you have no legal protection against sexual harassment. Which is even more likely to have sexual harassment because there's really, you don't have systems, HR systems and sort of- right. Yeah, there could be little, no. That's a riot. I did not know that. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, because of Me Too, women organized across the country at the state level, also at Congress, but not a lot of happened up there. But um, at the state level, got many, many new laws on sexual harassment. You know, I'm not saying that it's perfect. I mean, I always say to my students, social change happens slowly. Mm-hmm. It took 72 years to get 
the right to vote for women or get the 19th <laughs> Amendment. And many women still don't have the right to vote, right? Particularly women yes. of color. Yeah. But, you know, it's only been 46 years. My students say, that's like multiple of my lifetimes, but, you know, it's a blink of an eye for us older <laughs> folks. And yeah. uh, social change happens slowly. It does. So, um, you know, it can, people can look at me too and say, gosh, nothing's happening and hasn't, you know, nothing's changing. But I just think we need to remember social change happens slowly. Is there any backlash because of the Me Too movement? There's always backlash. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there was backlash, you know, when Anita Hill reported, there was back, you know, there's always backlash. People yeah. in power do not like social change. People in power like the status quo. And when people that are subordinate organize to resist, you know, oppression, you know, often there's a backlash. I mean, think of, you know, I mean, a really obvious example would be Black Lives Matter. Yeah, and all yeah. that's happening right now and the backlash against that. So, yes, there is backlash. Let me ask you this question. Uh, it does not reflect my point of view. I'm just playing devil's advocate here, uh, Dr. Right. Baker. What would you say to men who now claim men and women cannot be alone together in the workplace anymore or that men can no longer compliment a woman in the workplace on her looks? Well, first of all, I, I find that question, it's a good question. You hear it all the time. Yeah. This always comes up. And, you know, I guess I think better of men that men can control themselves and not sexually <laughs> harass women if they just keep their yeah. hands off the women and treat yeah. them respectfully. I mean, you know, a guy that says something like that, Mike Pence, for instance, said that, that he wouldn't meet alone with a woman. Remember that a few years ago, that only if his wife was present, would he have lunch with a woman? I mean, to me, that- Was he saying that for his base or did he really mean it? I bet he meant it. I bet he meant it because he comes from a mindset that, you know, that, you know, I I don't know. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say. I don't know if he meant it or not. But I, I do think that, it's kind of disrespectful of men to say that that men can't, you know, control themselves so they can't be alone with women. I think it's also disrespectful of women because what underlies that comment is that women can't be trusted and that women make false reports of sexual harassment. This is not true. All the research shows that false reports of sexual harassment is is no more common than false reports of anything else. So robbery or, you know, um, theft. Oh, I love that. That was my next, next question. Two to 3% of reports are false. And so, you know, the data does not support the claim that women are going to lie about sexual harassment. Now that said, you know, your, your comment about complimenting somebody on how they look, mm -hmm. I do mm -hmm. think that men need to be sensitive to the fact that women live in a world where they're constantly on display and their bodies are often commented on and they're evaluated by their bodies. And so I think that you need to be sensitive to how somebody might have a different experience in the world than you do. I mean, I think of this as a white person talking to, for instance, a black person. You know, I don't want to assume that the way I experience the world is how they experience the world. And I take it upon myself to educate myself about how you know, how do black people respond to, you know, a, a, you know, like touching a black woman's hair as a white person? You just don't do that. You just don't do that. That's like 101. You do yeah. not touch a black woman's hair. That's a highly fraught racist act. And, you know, but a white person that doesn't know that might go up and say, oh, I like your hair and touch a black woman's hair. It's it really behooves women. I mean, men to understand issues of sexual abuse and sexual harassment of women and learn how to behave so that they don't find themselves in a situation where they're making their female peers or god forbid subordinates uncomfortable in the work use some common sense yeah often it is common sense but you know sometimes it takes you know learning about these things too because it's not men's experience of being sexually objectified and you know i mean a really high percentage of women have had experiences of sexual assault and rape. And somebody that has already been assaulted is going to be more sensitive to issues of sexual aggression. And so educating yourself about that, I think, is a really important thing.
I want to shift a little bit and talk about something that is very important in our society, social media. It has profoundly changed our lives. I say that as a former attorney and entrepreneur, and I say that more importantly as a husband and a girl dad. Yeah. So <laughs> yay. <laughs> based on, yay. Based on your perspective and research, how has social media changed sexual harassment? Well, online harassment and cyber harassment is a huge area now. There are whole, you know, law firms now dedicated to that, that yeah. you know, address this issue because it can happen in a lot of different forms. It can happen anonymously. It can happen, um, you know, through like digital stalking, you know, doxing, you know, all sorts of things people can do to make somebody else's life miserable using online media. Um, however, it has also been an incredible organizing tool for the movement against sexual harassment. And I think Me Too is a perfect yeah. example. That's why Women I asked that question. Yeah. And shared their stories. And, you know, you know, and I think that can get tricky, obviously. I mean, um, because sometimes social media, it can act like a mob and it can jump ahead, you know, and accuse people who haven't had an opportunity to defend themselves or to tell their side of the story. And, you know, particularly when you're talking about, um, you know, the law, obviously people always have the right to defend themselves. Um, but often I think people can get sort of, um, you know, canceled or whatever, just based on allegations made over social media without, and then, you know, there's a pile on. And I think, so I think it can go both ways. I think it can be, it, it can be a dangerous tool, but it can also be an effective tool. You said, um, speaking of dangerous tool, you, earlier you said that the percentage of false report in sexual harassment cases is just comparable to any other false report that there's yes. not, there's nothing special about it. Um, have there been incidents uh, in the last several years uh, in which social media has gone ahead of uh, law or facts in a sexual harassment case? So, you know, the thing is, is I'm going back to where at the very beginning of the interview where we talked about the difference between the legal de definition of sexual harassment and the popular and the sort of common understanding. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, I remember during me too, that somebody would say, well, this, this was sexual harassment and it would be something that would never amount to a legal claim for sexual harassment, but was nonetheless, you know, like irritating behavior that was disrespectful. And I do, I think all of that gets mixed up. People think that sexual harassment is a crime, that any kind of, you know, inappropriate sexual behavior is sexual harassment. And therefore, you know, some, you know, comment made is a crime, you know, and, and they conflate all of this. And, and this is very common in the media that things there's not a lot of nuance and subtlety, you know, on Twitter, you only get what, how many characters. So <laughs> and, 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 and people use it yeah. to kind of like gain an audience and exactly. get lots of impact. And so, you know, the problem with something like sexual harassment is it's not, it's often, um, you know, <laughs> complicated and it, it gets, it gets watered down and simplified and then sort of sensationalized. And I think that that's particularly true in social media. And so I think that there are cases where people have been significantly harmed when they didn't engage in inappropriate behavior. I also think people can use it as a weapon against other people. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not, when I say the two to 3% of people, I'm talking about women that actually were sexually harassed, lying mm -hmm. about their experience. Now I'm sure there are people that just, you know, will make something up to try to attack somebody else. Um, but, um, but as far as legal claims of sexual harassment, um, that, you know, that figure of two to 3%, I'm talking about people that are actually, you know, file, reporting a, a claim yeah. to an authority. I'm not talking about somebody who, you know, at midnight is tweeting some random comment. I'm sure rates of um, questionable claims are higher in that kind of context. And it's really hard to either um, sort of uh, qualify it or, or, or quantify it because these sort of claims happen in all sorts of contexts you, you could you could be tweeting about 
whoever did a bad job for your construction or whatever it is. And I'm not saying those are equal. That's not what I meant, but I'm just saying right. it's, it's very hard to uh, research that and quantify it. Uh, let's take a break here, please. Stay with me and Professor Baker as we get into the perspective. Okay. Professor Baker, how much progress have we made in fighting sexual harassment and preventing it in, in the workplace since that famous spring of 1975 in Ithaca, New York? Well, unfortunately, rates of sexual harassment are pretty comparable today and back then, if you can believe it. However- No, I can't believe that's, that's hard to believe with all these it's laws and sad. awareness. Yeah, it's very wow. sad. It is pretty comparable. I think that the, the sort of explicit quid pro quo kind of sexual harassment, you know, is somewhat less common, but hostile environment sexual harassment is still pretty common. And I think in part, we have such a um, hierarchical workplace with many, many very vulnerable people that earn low wages and are very marginal as far as like being able to make their rent payments so they're vulnerable. We have a lot of undocumented workers in this country. And those people, you know, are very vulnerable to sexual harassment and often do not have the resources to be able to challenge that behavior in the workplace. And so at some level we still have a really long way to go. But at another level, I think that's sad. Yeah, it is sad. It is sad. It's very sad. But at another level, I think we've come a long way because we do have laws and we do have more awareness. And we, more importantly, we have organizations that make it their mission to fight this kind of behavior, to organize around it. And there's more and more creative ways that activists are organizing around this behavior. So I think about like the One Fair Wage campaign which is the attempt to try to get rid of the sub-minimum wage for service workers, people that serve in restaurants. Restaurant work is one of the occupations with the highest rate of sexual harassment. And the reason By, by the is, clientele or the employers or both? Often by both. It can be by peers. It can also be by clientele. And part of the reason is that servers are dependent on tips to make a living wage. And that's, and the subminimum yeah. wage, which, you know, at the federal level is still, I think, $2 and 17 cents an hour. You know, the idea is that you make up the difference by tips. Yeah. But the problem is that often means putting up with sexual harassment. And there's a campaign now um, in a number of states, including New York, it's called the One Fair Wage Campaign, which is to try to get rid of the subminimum wage. And so there's, you know, there's exciting things going on to try to pressure um, or to try to empower workers. I mean, I think, by the way, I think a federal minimum wage of $15 an hour would do a lot to help reduce sexual harassment. So my point being okay. is that there are creative strategies that activists are taking to try to empower workers so that workers are less vulnerable to sexual harassment. So they're not just relying on the traditional anti-discrimination law and all of that. They're trying to find new and different ways to empower workers to be able to resist this behavior and to not suffer you know, as much economically as they do currently. You, uh, you mentioned that there are many organizations that now uh, fight sexual harassment and support women. Um, can you just name a handful of them here? Yeah, I mean, and, and this is, of course, there's issues right now around Time's Up, but Time's Up raised, I think, over $22 million, which they gave to the National Women's Law Center, which provides pro bono legal assistance to people who experience sexual harassment. And that's been huge. And they've helped an enormous number of people. And, and that's people nationwide? Yeah, that's nationwide. I mean, National Women's Law Center is based in, in Washington, D.C., but they have mm -hmm. pro bono attorneys around the country and they have resources that if you have a case, they will actually help you pay for an attorney to represent you. And those funds often go towards workers that don't have the resources to actually hire attorneys. 
Um, and there's other organizations that are working to pass laws. I mean, Feminist Majority Foundation or, you know, other groups that are working to try to um, um, pass better laws at the state level and the federal level um, to, you know, ex cover more workers or to, you know, lower the legal standards so it's mm -hmm. not so hard to prove sexual harassment or create the opportunity for more damages like compensatory damages or even punitive damages so that if somebody, you know, so it makes it an attorney an attorney's it's worth an attorney's while to take yeah, these cases because yeah. that's another big issue extending the statute of limitations um making i think that's a big deal extending the statute of limitation because totally. uh, uh, an aggrieved person woman or men more likely a woman uh may, may out of fear of retaliation may be hesitant to to come forward and it may take her some time to even figure out what her rights are, what sort of resources there are. So uh, if that statute of limitations runs out, then she's out of luck. Uh, and yeah. She, yeah. And um, under Title Seven, the statute of limitations is six months, right? No way. Six months for the EEOC and at the state fair employment practice, it's a year. That's all. It's very short. Did the Me Too movement change that? Well, that's one of the issues. As I say, they're working on trying to extend the time to file a complaint. And many state laws are doing that. Many state laws have longer statute of limitations. But as you say, I totally agree. It, sometimes it takes a while for people to have the courage yeah. to stand up. Because you don't, you know, six months or, or, or a year, you, you can't even leave your job. You got to look for a different job. You got to sort of strategize what you want to do next. Yep. If you wanted our audience to remember just, just one point about sexual harassment, what would that be? Well, it was my comment that I made earlier about social change is slow. I think people can get really discouraged when something like the Cuomo case happens and they think, wait a minute, Me Too happened three years ago. I thought we dealt with this problem. How did he get away with it? You know, I thought we were done with this, right? We thought we were done with this, I, you know, but these are deep issues and there's a lot of resistance and it's, it's not just about legal change. It's about cultural change and it's about change in attitudes, change in people's hearts and minds. And it's, it's hard work. Social movements, it can take years and years and years to actually change people's behaviors around these it's issues. It's already been 40 plus, plus years. It's already been 40 plus years. But remember, it took 72 to get title uh, yeah. to get the 19th Amendment, and yeah. we're still fighting for the right to vote. Um, you know, I mean, I think we need more people involved. I think we need people to educate themselves about this issue. I, I would encourage all of your listeners to see what the law is in their states and contact their representatives and see if they can improve the law for people in their state. See if there's organizations in your state working on these issues, because there are a lot of local organizations across the country working on these issues. So I would just encourage them, if they care about this, to, um, to get, get involved in trying to make it better. Wonderful. Uh, Professor Baker, we've covered so much before we end our podcast conversation. Is there anything else you wish to share? Well, I, I'll just say I appreciate your concern about this issue. I think it's really important that this isn't just a fight that women have. No, but it's that not. Women and men. And, and I mean, not just I have a wife girl and a dads. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, certainly because you're a girl dad. But just more generally, um, you know, first of all, men experience sexual harassment. But second of all, that it's about creating a humane workplace. And it's yeah. about fairness in the workplace. I really think that, you know, Everybody should be invested in making fairer workplaces. And, you know, it's not just about sexual harassment. It's also about racial harassment in the workplace or harassment, just generally bullying in the workplace, which unfortunately there aren't any civil rights laws to cover. You know, if yeah. somebody bullies you just because they can, you don't have a legal claim. If somebody bullies you because of your race or sex, you do, you know, but, um, you know, I, I, and that's one other point I just want to come back to is that this isn't just, you know, this is a racialized issue. Way disproportionately people who experience sexual and harassment I appreciate you sharing are that. women yeah. of color. Yeah. And, and, or immigrant women or, or, you know, or women maybe that aren't um, English language speakers who again become particularly vulnerable. And so I think that when we think about this issue, I mean, a lot of the really cool organizations that are working on this are immigrant women's organizations or domestic workers organization, the National Domestic Workers Alliance. 
because often domestic workers aren't covered by laws because they work for one, they're one employee. And, you know, it's one on one. The thing that you were talking about, less than 15 employees. Yeah. 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 So, so, you know, it's really something that the most vulnerable people experience the most. And so just as a matter of social justice, I think it's something that we all need to be concerned about and work to end. Professor Baker, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the peel.news anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, Share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at thepeel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with Appeal.news.